Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Again, I want to welcome you to worship this morning. We're in God's house, and we're here for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to worship the one who died upon the cross, rose from the dead, to give us eternal life, even Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Before we begin, uh, Jerry and Wanda Constable asked that we would pray for their son, Eric, and Eric's wife. Uh, They have uh, contracted COVID and uh, are going through the processes now uh, to recover from that. They live out of state, up in the North Country. Uh, Washington, is it, Jerry? Seattle, Washington. Okay, so we want to remember Eric and his wife as we pray. So let's pause and do that, if we will, together. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you that it is a time that has been set aside, that we might rest in you and reflect upon your grace and your mercy and your goodness toward us. Father, we would confess honestly, that we are not worthy of your love or your mercy or your grace. We're not even worthy of your attention. But you have chosen, Lord, to love us and to open our understanding to you that we might know you, whom to know is life everlasting. And I would ask, lifting up Eric and his family to you this morning, that you will bless them with renewed health, strength in their physical bodies, in their immune system, to fight off the virus that has so afflicted them. And Lord, there are others, not only in our fellowship, but friends and family members of our church, who are still struggling with the effects of COVID and with other viral and bacterial infections. We lift them up to you as well. You know each and every one of them. You know their greatest need. And I pray because of your great love that you will meet that need through the power of your Holy Spirit as you minister to them. Now, Father, we give you this time of study in your word, and I pray that it will be fruitful to our understanding and to our living for Jesus, because it's in his name I pray. Amen. I know that most of us pray regularly, and some of us pray from time to time, and still others of us pray when we're in a pinch. When we find ourselves between a rock and a hard place, when things aren't going so well, when plans are falling through, when our life seems to kind of fall apart and relationships fall apart and those kinds of things, you know, the stuff uh, that we face each and every day in life. And Uh, Sometimes, even though we may not be Christian, even though we may not even be religious, uh, I'm sure that there are times, maybe even in a tragedy, when you would simply whisper a prayer, God help me, God help me, 
Now, you may not know God this morning, but I guarantee you, my friend, He knows you. He knows you because He created you, and He has given you life today that you might live that life uh, in the anticipation that you will come to know Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so I know, for the most part, all of us pray, whether we like to or not, oftentimes when we need to. This morning, I want to focus our attention back in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 9, 10, and 11. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9, 10, and 11. Now this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he loved very, very much. The Philippian, he was only in Philippi for just a very short time. But in the short time that Paul was in this um, European city, he fell in love with these people. Some of us know what that's all about. Don't we, Captain? We went to the Ukraine a number of years ago. Didn't know the language. Never met the people before in our lives. But God called us and several others of us to take a team to the former Soviet Republic of Ukraine back in 2002 and then again in 2003, then again in 2004. And we built three churches over there. Captain was the only one that was with me all three times in our journeys over there. And the first time we met those folks, did we not fall in love with them? And after we were there for just a short week, it, seemed, it just flew by. It broke our hearts to have to leave and come back home. Not that we didn't want to come home, we certainly did, but we fell in love with those people there. They meant, and they still do mean, a great deal to us. We keep in contact with them. We talk with them via email and Facebook and letters, and uh, they still are uh, loving us and praying for us here in the United States as we are loving them and praying for them in Ukraine. This was the situation that the Apostle Paul experienced when he went to Philippi. A group of people living in a pagan town under Roman law, under Roman authority, worshiping pagan idols. And the Apostle Paul simply went to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with these people. And a number of them came to faith in Jesus. And some of the individuals that came to faith in Jesus Christ became uh, great friends and supporters of the Apostle Paul after he left Philippi and went on to other cities to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with other folks throughout Asia Minor and in Europe. Paul is in prison when he writes this letter. He is in Rome. He has been arrested. He's been thrown into prison. And while he is in prison, he remembers his dear friends in Philippi, several hundred miles away. And so he writes this letter to them to share with them how much he loves them and how much he remembers them and how much he prays for them. And he thanks them for their support, 
for their encouragement and for sending word to him through individuals who have left Philippi and come to Rome to minister to Paul while he's in prison. He wanted to thank them. He writes to us in verses 9, 10, and 11, chapter 1 of the letter to the Philippians, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and to the praise of God. This is the word of the Lord, and we pray his blessing be added to the reading of the word. In this prayer, it's a very brief prayer, the Apostle Paul mentions two very important, he makes two very important requests in this prayer. The first request is this, that God would give the Christians in Philippi an abundant and overflowing love that results in spiritual knowledge and understanding. Now, I know we all have our ideas of what love really is. Uh, I am old enough to remember the 60s. That would be the 1960s. (laughs) I'm old enough to remember the 60s and the free love movement and all of the music that came out of the 60s talking about love and talking about this, that, and the other and everybody just feeling free and everybody just loving everybody else. That's not the love that the Apostle Paul is talking about here. We'll get to that in just a moment. But he prays that God will bless these people with an abounding love that results in two things, that results in true spiritual knowledge and in true spiritual understanding. Both of these things lead to spiritual maturity, and that's what we've been thinking about for the last two Sundays. What are the principles, what are the elements that are necessary for Christians to mature in their spiritual walk with God. Now you'll notice here that he prays for this love that will lead to true spiritual knowledge and understanding. And that's a thing that we need to stop and take note of because just because you know something doesn't mean you understand it. Right? Nod your head yes. There are a lot of people who know a lot of things but they don't understand the things that they know. And you may say, that's kind of odd, that's kind of weird, that's kind of strange, that you would know something and not understand it. No, it's quite common. And we all face it. Because most of us, especially men, we have this bald spot back here. And that bald spot is there because many times we sit down and we scratch that place because we can't figure something out. We can read the words on the manual, in the, on the pages of the manual, but we can't figure out what it's talking about. There's a difference between knowing something and understanding what it is that you know. And the Apostle Paul is saying, I pray that God will give you spiritual knowledge and spiritual understanding. But he makes a second request here, and that is that they would recognize the things that are truly important 
in life, things that are truly important in life that will result in spiritual purity and moral integrity. What's important in your life? Some of you are young, some of you are teenagers, some of you are just past your teens and into young adulthood, some of you are in media adults, some of you are uh, empty nesters, some of you are raising your grandchildren, some of you are beyond that, some of you are nearing the jumping off point. What was important and what is important to you? I mean, really, what's important to you? That you look good when you pose in front of the mirror? That you sound good when you talk to other people? That you make good grades in school? That you uh, do your job so well that, that you're up for promotion? Is family important to you? Friends, are they important to you? Making a good wage, is that important to you? Having good health, is that important to you? What is important to you? The Apostle Paul requested of God that you would give these Philippian Christians the recognition of what is really important in life. What is really important in life that would result in spiritual purity and in moral integrity. Now, the first request, an overflowing love that results in knowledge and discernment, that looks forward to the coming of Christ. That's a forward-looking prayer request. Paul is saying, God, give these people the kind of love that prepares them for the coming of Christ. And dear friend, let me tell you, Scripture uh, reveals this to us, both in Old Testament and New Testament, that the one who came to us nearly 2,000 years ago, over 2,000 years ago now, the one who came to us clothed in human flesh, whose name was Jesus, the one who committed himself to be the sacrifice that God required upon the cross to save you and to save me from sin, the one who rose from the dead three days later, and then on Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, 40 days later, 50 days later, was ascended to the Father on high, that one whom we know to be Jesus Christ, who came and gave his life for us, is coming again. He's coming again. Now you may very well say, well, I don't believe in any of that stuff. Believe it or not, friends, does not erase the fact, does not erase the truth. God has promised that the Lord Jesus Christ will come from heaven with the shout of the archangel, with the voice of the trumpet, and he will establish his kingdom here on the earth for a thousand years. And those who know him as Lord and Savior will reign with him in that kingdom here on earth. You may not believe in Jesus. You may not have accepted him as Lord and Savior. You may not believe the words of Scripture. And that's your prerogative. But it does not take away the fact and it does not remove the truth that the one who came to save us is the one who's coming to take us home, to be with him. And so this first request looks forward to that coming. How so? 
Well, the request is that we would have an overflowing love that results in spiritual knowledge. A lot of people don't believe these things because they don't have the spiritual eyes to see them in Scripture. And they don't have understanding, spiritual understanding, because their, their spirit, their mind, their heart is not opened to the things that God has said to us in His Word. And that may be something that is yet to happen in your life. And we pray, along with the Apostle Paul, that God will give you such a love for Him that you will have that spiritual knowledge and that spiritual understanding that will open your life up to the truth that Jesus did die for you. And someday, very, very soon, Jesus is coming back to take you home to heaven to be with Him. So it's a forward-looking prayer request. But the second request recognizing the things that are truly important that result in spiritual purity and moral integrity, that's a backward look. Notice what the Apostle Paul said here. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere, blameless until the day of Christ. So we want to have spiritual knowledge and we want to have spiritual understanding through the love of God in looking forward to the coming of Christ. Do I know when that day is, it, is going to uh, be? No, I have no idea. Do we know the hour? Do we know the time? Do we know the moment when Christ is going to announce his return? Have no clue. Some people have tried to establish a date and a time, and we know what happened to that and to them. Bible doesn't say. As a matter of fact, Jesus said the angels of heaven don't even know when the second coming is going to happen, but it is going to happen. And so we want that spiritual knowledge and understanding in light of the coming of Christ. But when that day comes, whether he comes for us from the courts of heaven or we die and we go to him, because we leave this earth, we want to be able to look back on our life and say, I have lived my life in spiritual purity and in moral integrity. I want to live my life with spiritual understanding and spiritual knowledge, and I want to be able to look back on my life knowing that I've done my best to live a spiritually pure life and to live and have lived a life with moral integrity. So in other words, the Apostle Paul, in his prayer for Christians and for the Christian church, is that we would so live our lives that we will grow. We will grow in spiritual maturity so that when the Lord returns or we leave this life to be with him in heaven, we can look back on our lives and we can see that we did grow in spiritual maturity. Now that's a very important prayer to pray. Paul does not want the Philippian Christians to be ashamed at the second coming of Christ. He did not want them to cower in fear or embarrassment for having lived a life of worldliness, of sin, of self-centeredness, 
of all of the things that displease the Lord God and ruin and wreck our own lives, Paul did not want the Philippian Christians to be embarrassed when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And he doesn't want you, and I do not want you, to have that same fear with regard to the coming of the Lord. His desire, my desire, and I pray that your desire, is that we will do what is necessary, what Scripture outlines for us to do, to grow in spiritual maturity. Now it's a tragic thing, is it not? To see a child or to have a child. that does not grow to maturity. Some of you know that my second oldest brother, Roger, we called him Bill because he wanted us to call him that. He was born a Down syndrome baby. And as Bill, as he lived, he grew physically into a mature physical human being, but mentally his mind never developed past the age of five. We say how tragic that an individual would not be whole, would not have maturity like I have like you have, mentally, to understand the things that we understand with our adult mind. I've, no, I've known children that have never grown physically. Mentally they grew uh, into adulthood, but physically they remained small and infantile. And again we would say, how tragic that an individual could be born into a life where they do not experience wholeness. They do not experience maturity. They cannot grow beyond the restrictions and the limitations of their mental or their physical handicap. And that is tragic to you and to me. But what is tragic to the Lord God is that you would be born into the kingdom of God by accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would be born into the kingdom of God by accepting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, but get so caught up in the things of the world and the things of the flesh that we would never grow spiritually. We would forever remain spiritually immature. How tragic that that would be. That we would never grow and develop in our walk with God to the point where we could be fruitful and productive in His kingdom. Because we're always stubbing our spiritual toes on sin. We're always falling down flat on our faces because of worldliness. Because of our attachment to the things of the flesh. Paul didn't want that to happen. We don't want that to happen. There are a number of elements. Today we're going to focus our attention on the overflowing and the ever-increasing love that leads to spiritual maturity. Now, most of us are bottom-line people. You know what I mean when I say bottom-line? We want to cut to the chase, right? We want to clear out all of the, 
uh, travel log and get right to the destination. We don't want to mess around with all of the you know, accoutrements and so on and so forth. We want to get down to the bottom line. We want to cut the chase, cut to the chase, and get down to, to knowing exactly what it is that God requires of us. Well, let me give you just a very brief history of what God requires of us. Through Moses, the Old Testament prophet, lawgiver Moses, God gave Israel Ten Commandments. And you can find those Ten Commandments in your Bible in Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 through 17, and in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 to 21. You don't need to turn there. You can simply reference that. Those are the places where the Ten Commandments are recorded. They were carved by the hand of God on two tablets of stone that Moses received when he went up on Mount Sinai and spent 40 days and nights with the Lord up on Mount Sinai. First tablet of stone outlined our relationship to God. And that comes first. And understand that, my friends. That's always first. Not only is it first in the Old Testament, it's also first in the New Testament. If we do not have a right relationship with God, we can never have a right relationship with each other. We can do our best to have a great relationship with other folks, with a wife or husband, with our children, with our parents, with our siblings, with our friends and our neighbors. But my friends, if this, if this vertical plane, the spiritual plane of our lives is not set as it should be, then the horizontal plane of our physical relationships will not be set as they should be. The first commandments given to Moses outlines our relationship to God because that's what's most important. If we're not right with God, we will not be right with each other. And these are the things that are given to us on that first tablet of stone, that we're to affirm that he is the only true and living God, that we're to honor God as our only Lord in life, that we're to worship God and worship him only, and that we are to respect the name of the Lord, we're to rest and reflect upon God's goodness in our lives. Those are the things that we need to attend to in knowing and in walking in fellowship with God. Now on the second tablet of stone, there are those principles that relate to our relationship to each other. We're to honor our parents. We're to respect all life. We are to honor the marriage covenant. We are to respect what belongs to others. We are to speak the truth in all things. And we're to be content with what God has blessed us with. Those are the laws. Those are the commandments on the second tablet of stone. And most people say, well, that's not a big problem. That, you know, do that, not a problem. Try it. <laughs> try it. Even for one day, try it. Try to honor all ten of them. Now, Jesus, quite a few years later after Moses, Jesus was out ministering to folks one day and someone came up to him and asked him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? His purpose was to try to trap Jesus into declaring that one law of God is more important than the other laws. 
But Jesus was smarter than that. He wasn't going to fall into that kind of trap. Jesus understood that every law of God is equally important to every other law of God. There is no one law superior to the other. As a matter of fact, the scripture tells us that if we break one law, we're guilty of breaking all of them. So this individual wanted to trap Jesus. And so he said, tell me which is the greatest commandment in the law. Jesus said that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Here's what Jesus said. Listen, fella, let's just boil this sucker down to its basic element. The first tablet of stone is our relationship to God. And in these things it says that we are to love God with all that we are and with all that we have. The second tablet of stone, these are the things that God says we need to put in place in order to have a right relationship with each other. And so this means that we are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So really what God is saying through the Ten Commandments is, love me as the Lord your God and love each other as you ought to can't be more simple than that, can it? Love the Lord God with all that you are and all that you have and love others with the same love that you have for yourself. And these commandments of honoring and respecting God and honoring and respecting uh, everyone else is based on one motivating principle and that is the principle of love. It's the principle of love. And so I want us to kind of understand a little bit about this thing called love. A lot of songs have been written about love. wonder sometimes how some of them ever got recorded. But that's another thing. And we all have, as I said a while ago, we have our concept of love, what love is. I know young people have their own concept of love. And it's this ooey-gooey, you know, uh, heart-thumping, mind-numbing, uh, warm, fuzzy feeling that they have for another individual. Um, as you get older, um, it changes. <clears throat> there are four words, okay? There are four words in the New Testament that express love. Now, we just have basically one word in the English that expresses love. But in the Greek New Testament, there are four words that uh, express love. The first one is thelo. Say it with me, thelo. Thelo. In your sermon outline, you have these four listed there. The first one is thelo. Thelo. It means to desire what is best for others based on a common love for each other. To desire what is best for other people because, you know, they're human beings as well. And so we want to desire the best for them. That's fellow. It's not used very often in the New Testament, but it's there. The second word is prosphilase. Say it. Prosphilase. Prosphilase. I'm sure you'll use that word quite often from now on. Prosphilase. It refers to what is worthy of our love. What is worthy of our affection? What is worthy of our attention? What is worthy of our desires? Prosphilase. The third word is phileo. 
say it, phileo. Phileo. This is a more common word in the New Testament. It means to have and to show love toward another person as a friend. How many of you have friends? How many of you have friends? Some of you don't. (laughs) Which may explain your answer to the second question, how many of you are friends? Phileo is a common New Testament Greek word for friendship. It's the, it's the love that we have for each other as friends. And then there is the fourth word, agapao. Say it with me, agapao, agapao. It expresses God's love for us. It expresses our love for God. It expresses the kind of love that we need to have toward each other. And it also expresses the kind of love that we are to have for ourselves. The kind of love that we're to have for ourselves. Now, the Apostle Paul prayed that the Philippian church, that the Philippian Christians would have an overflowing love that results in spiritual knowledge and in understanding. He prayed that they would be blessed with a superabundance of love that, we re- that would result in spiritual maturity. And the love that he mentions here in the text is not phileo, friendship love, kinship love, the love that we have for each other. You scratch my back, I'll scratch, my, I'll scratch your back. You do me a good turn, I'll do you a good turn. I owe you one, you owe me one. That kind of love, that kind of friendship. No, he uses the word agapao. Agapao. And so you may very well ask, what's the difference? Well, I'm glad you asked. Phileo, brotherly love, kinship love, is what binds us together as human beings. It's what keeps us in social agreement, if you will, for lack of a better word. It's what keeps our society together. It is the relationship, the emotion, uh, the emotional relationship that we have with each other as human beings, as family members, as friends, as colleagues, whatever. It is that tie that we have with each other as humans. It's based on a common interest or a common desire. You're friends with certain individuals because you have certain things in common. Some of you like to fish. Some of you don't. Some of you like to golf. Most of us don't. Some of you, uh, you know, you like to, you like your job and you like working with the people that you work with at your job. Those are the kinds of things that tie us together, interests and desires that tie us together as human beings. It is the love that is shared between friends. To be friends with someone is to desire what they desire, to enjoy what they enjoy. Quite often, brotherly love is motivated and directed by our emotions. And the reason that we know this is because many times in the course of our life, we come into relationship with people and those relationships are broken because of some emotional strain that's been put on that relationship. You know, they said something that, you know, just burnt my bacon. Or, you know, they did something that was out of line. Or, you know, they, they, um, they didn't treat me the, the way that I felt I should have been treated. 
or maybe they thought that I did the same to them. But something happens along the line that relationships begin to break down, and all too often it's an emotional thing. It's an emotional thing. Agapao, on the other hand, is godly love. It's what binds us together with God, and it's what God desires for us to share with each other that binds us together as followers of Jesus Christ. It's the highest level of love that can be expressed or experienced in a person's life. Unlike brotherly love, godly love is not motivated by emotion, nor is it directed by our emotion. There is an emotional aspect to it, but emotions are secondary to godly love. Godly love is motivated by God's desire to help us. And your desire, if it is of godly love, to help someone else. It is motivated by God's desire to help us, and it is directed by God's will to help us. The essence of godly love is the desire to do what is good, to be benevolent toward others, and to express joy in the object of that good will. Now, lest you think that godly love is rather stone cold and doesn't have a lot of warm fuzzy to it, you would be right. But it is that way for a purpose. And we have to understand why it is that way. Godly love sees and understands. Now get this. Godly love sees and understands what a person truly needs. And then he chooses to meet that need. God, godly love sees and understands what a person truly needs. And then he chooses to meet that need. Let me give you an example. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. You know this passage of Scripture fairly well, I'm sure. John, 16, John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And a lot of people would say, even Christian people say, well, oh, how wonderful, how great, how marvelous that God loves me. And when we think of God's love in those terms, then there will also come a time in your life when you do something out of line, when you disobey the Lord God, and you fall out of fellowship with God, and you come to that place when you say, Oh, God does not love me anymore. And it's all based on emotion. God doesn't love a love that is based on emotion. God's love is based on His desire to meet whatever need you have in your life. And that desire then is directed by His will to meet that need in your life. So what does that mean? That means simply this, that God saw our sinfulness, 
And God understood our need to be saved from sin and from death and from hell. And then he desired to meet that need. So he willingly sent his son Jesus Christ to die on a cross so that need could be met. His motivation behind salvation was not emotional. It was willful because it was his desire to save us. Now, how do I know that to be true? Because I know that many of us are unlovely people. Aren't we? Yes, you are. Because I know some of you. Besides that, I'm not a lovely person. I'm not a person that people would, you know, get all... Anyway. <laughs> we act a lot of times like kids in kindergarten fighting over the sandbox. Even as adults we do. We treat each other in ways that we would never want to be treated ourselves. We bring things into our lives that are designed to destroy us. Can you say alcohol? Can you say drugs? Can you say speeding down the highway at, an, at 90 miles an hour? No reference to you, brother. We had fun on that trip. I need to explain that. Steve and I, we went back to Texas to visit my family a number of years ago. And on our way back home, Chris and Hannah were in a, a dire situation with their first child. And so we decided to cut our visit short. And so we were on our way back home. And we were coming back home on I-10. And lo and behold, when you leave Texas on I-10 and you get over into New Mexico and Arizona, the speed limit was what? 85? 85. And we did every bit of that, didn't we? Yeah, you did more. <laughs> I did too. I did too. But we do things, and we bring things into our lives that are designed to destroy us. Why would God love people like that, who do those kinds of things? Why would God love people who are not kind and gracious and generous and, and forgiving of other people? Why, why would God be motivated to love us like this? Well, if God's love was based on emotion, he wouldn't. But God's love is not based on emotion. God's love is based on the need that we have in our lives for something that only God can do and only God can meet in our lives. And so he saw that we are condemned in our sin. He saw that we were a rebellious people, a disobedient people. And there was only one remedy for that, and that was to send his son Jesus to give his life on the cross as a sacrifice that would save us from that sin. And what did God do? He sent his son to do exactly that. He didn't do that because he had a gushy, gushy, warm, fuzzy feeling toward us. He did that because it was the greatest need in our lives. And he met that need so that we might be saved. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. For while we were still helpless, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God would love us and ungodly people? Yes. 
In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, rebellious, obstinate, disobedient, God-haters, worldly, selfish, fleshly, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 10, for if while we were enemies... Enemies of God. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we should be saved by his life. You get the picture here, friends? This is the kind of love that God has for you. If you do not know God personally, understand that God loves you with a love that you can never really understand until you embark on a relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. He does not love you with an emotional love that's here today and gone tomorrow. He doesn't love you with a love that is conditioned by emotion that can be high and mighty today and low and down in the dumps tomorrow. He doesn't love you with a kind of love that can be broken and disappointed and frustrated. He loves you with a love that meets the greatest need in your life. And that need is to know Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's His love for you. God does not love us because we're lovable. He loves us because it's in His nature to love us and it is the expression of His desire to meet our need for salvation and eternal life in Him. In Ephesians chapter 2, you're in your Bibles, you're at Philippians, turn left and go to Ephesians chapter 2, if you will, please. Verses 1 through 5. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. The Apostle Paul is just bluntly honest. Paul does not pull punches with folks. He is not bound by political correctness in his day, thank God. He tells us how the cow eats the cabbage. He tells us just how life truly is. He said, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan, by the way of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, but God, being rich in mercy. Do you know what mercy is? Do you know what mercy is? Mercy is giving you what you don't deserve. Mercy is giving you what you don't deserve. We deserve judgment. We deserve punishment because of sin. God does not give us what we deserve. He extends to us mercy. Because of his great love. Because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's the love of God. That's what he does for you and for me. And, and again, understand this, friends. You don't earn it. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't buy it. You can't steal it from somebody else. You don't inherit it from your parents or your grandparents or your friends. 
God's love is given to you by God alone because he wills to love you. He desires to love you. He wants to meet that deepest need in your life so that you can have fellowship with him. And the only way you can receive it is through his son, Jesus Christ. That's the provision that he has made for you. Bought and paid for by the blood of his son. Now, I know our time is gone, but I have to ask and answer the question, if that's how God loves us, how are we to love him? How do we reciprocate this? Do we just say, thank you God, and go on our merry way? How do we respond to this kind of, you know, in Phileo, in friendship love, if someone demonstrates uh, love toward you, you want to demonstrate love toward them as well, don't you? Don't you? Don't you? Okay, just wondering if you were asleep. Of course you do. Friendship is built on reciprocity. You do for me, I do for you. And that's how friendships are built That may not necessarily be how they start, but that's how friendships build. You continue to do things for each other because of that relationship that that you have, that appreciation, that love that you have for each other. So if we understand this is how God loves us, then we have to ask the question, well, then how do I love him? How do I respond to that? How do I reciprocate that? Certainly not with phileo. We cannot love God like we love each other because, again, the love that you and I have for each other is based on emotion. The love that God has for us and the love that God desires from us is not based on emotion. It's agapao. It's based on the desire and the will to respond to his love. It's not phileo because... Phileo is brotherly love, and God is not our brother. And let me simply say this to you, friends, and don't throw stones at me yet. God is not our friend either. But he is our father. And that's something greater than a friend. Jesus is our friend. And he even calls us our friend. His friend. But God is our Father. And with that understanding of the fatherhood of God comes a certain respect, a certain honor, a certain attitude that we cannot and we do not have toward each other as friends. So we cannot love God with phileo because he's a holy God and we're not necessarily holy people all of the time. We are to love him with agapao, godly love, but this is not possible 
apart from Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 through 19, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God. The word abide simply means to live in. So the one who lives in love lives in God, and God lives in him. By this, love is perfected within us, so that we may be that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love, listen, we love because he first loved us. The only way that we can reciprocate godly love is to receive godly love. Then we can understand it and reciprocate that to him. In other words, we can't express the highest and the greatest level of love for God and for others until, first of all, we experience it in our own lives. John chapter 15, verses 9 through 14. Just as the Father has loved me, Jesus said, just as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Speaking to his disciples. Live in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll live in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and live in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than one lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And that's why Jesus is our friend. And that's why Jesus calls us his friends. So, when we have an overflowing love, coming back to the prayer of Paul, when we have this superabundance, this overflowing godly love in our lives, it changes us. Just like all love changes us. Some of you have loved. And some of you have been loved deeply. And as you reflect back on that love, you cannot help but say yes, that that love changed you. There was something about that relationship that made you a different person. And the same is true when we understand and appreciate the love of God in our lives. It changes us. When we receive that love through His Son, Jesus Christ, it changes us. It makes us a different person. And so when we receive that love, it then becomes our desire to love Him. And how do we do that? Well, the Apostle John tells us, not only in 1 John, but also here in the Gospel of John, we have the desire then to live for Him. We have the desire to serve Him. We desire to minister to others in His name. We desire to obey His will in our life. We desire to shun sin and the things of the flesh and the things of the world and to love holiness and to love righteousness. We long to be what He wants us to be and we no longer long to be what we want to be. This same love for God will overflow not only in our lives, 
but also in our church and in our friendships and in our families and among our colleagues and those that we work with and go to school with. This love will overflow and affect everyone around us because it has so affected us. It will then be our desire to see and to understand the needs of other people and the desire to reach out and to meet those needs, not as they dictate and not even as we dictate, but as the Holy Spirit leads us to reach out and meet the needs of other people. So now, in closing, this is the first principle of spiritual maturity. It is the first principle of spiritual maturity that we will have an overflowing love on an increasing scale. A love for the Lord with all that we are and all that we have and a love for other people that is in order, that is respectful, that is honorable, that is moral, that is reflective of God's love for us. And this we will do. This we will do. Because the Lord our God has given us the example through His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on Him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to Him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org. Oh, R.G.